0: Play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show.
1: Cairo, Seattle.
0: I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi. Isaac started selling his designs at high-end New York City boutiques when he was just 15 years old. He officially launched his brand in 1987 and quickly became one of the biggest names in American fashion. Isaac released a charming book last year called I Am a Memoir that I just absolutely gobbled up in a handful of days. And speaking of gobbling up, Isaac loves food and cooking, but he will always choose something classic over something trendy.
2: She also just makes like, you know, wonderful sort of newfangled muffin ideas Um, because nothing is a muffin anymore, by the way. Way. It always has to be like some hybrid between a muffin and a scuffin and a muffin and a shuffin and a right and nothing. <laughs> I was going to say, croissant. what's
0: a muffin idea? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what I'm talking about. Do not yes. lie. <laughs> right. Say so you
2: don't know what I'm talking about. They don't make the plain old baked goods anymore. Yeah. Like it's a quassini. Right. Totally. It's a totally. croissant. Quassinta. It's not a croissant. <laughs> you see what I mean? Which or is it's also your psychic's name, Quassinta. Right. Exactly. Boom.
0: Isaac's home base is in New York City, but he also has a second home in Bridge hampton long island which is where he sources most of the produce for his last meal and while discussing his last meal isaac sent me on a mission to uncover a culinary mystery that no one has been able to solve for him now i can't take too much credit because i consulted with three experts to solve this mystery i spoke with top ice cream scientists over at ben and jerry's headquarters and at molly moon's homemade ice cream in seattle And I even checked in with the kitchen manager at Nestle for good measure. And I was handsomely rewarded for all of my efforts. We will talk about that much later in the show. But right now, my conversation with the most precious man, somebody who makes you feel really special when you're talking to them, definitely the only person that I've interviewed for the podcast who started the interview by asking me a question
2: what did you eat for lunch today Rachel Bell
0: oh god well you know what's funny I I didn't eat lunch but for breakfast I ate I'm such a Jew I had like chicken soup that I made from scratch but no matzo balls
2: wow that sounds like an overachieving kind of breakfast darling
0: know. <laughs> well I didn't make it from scratch today it was leftovers okay. what did you oh, okay. have for
2: lunch well, you know, I didn't eat breakfast, so I went for this like big kind of sandwich at cook shop. It was like delicious. It was roasted, roasted uh, mushrooms and loads of cheese. Like I haven't had Ooh. seen that much cheese on a plate in a really long time. So delicious. And I ate every bite of it. It was one, like a panini.
0: Yeah. Did you oh, even scrape on. the cheese that had melted onto the plate off? I love the cheese yes, that I gets I did. stuck.
2: I did. You're sick. You're a sick girl. But I did. <laughs> <How about> that. <laughs>
0: That's that's my favorite part. There's like this local burger chain here called Dick's and I call it cheese paper, like the cheese that sticks to the paper when you open it. And I like to scrape it off with my teeth like an animal.
2: Where's your novel? Come on. That's a real detail that would resonate with so many millions of people.
0: Thank you. It's what I love. um, Is it called the preface or the forward to your book where you're like, I just want to talk about the minutiae. And I was like, please do.
2: I know. That's next volume. Yes.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Isaac Mizrahi. I'm gonna start by asking you a random question. I read this article, I don't remember where it was now, maybe the kitchen or something, where they came over to your house and they looked through your fridge and you had to comment on basically everything you had in your fridge. Um, right? and which is like opening up your underwear drawer. It's like very vulnerable. <laughs> and you had to make a comment on the fact that you had Worcester sauce in your fridge, and you said it's like granny's panties. What does that mean?
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's a that's a phrase that comes from my friend Mark Morris. He always says, oh, it has a little bit of Granny's Panties in it, which means it's a little like it's a little off tasting, a little like yeasty or fungusy tasting. (laughs) Granny's Panties. Yeah, it's it's the Mark Morris version of umami possibly. Possibly?
0: Granny's Panties, the fifth taste. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly.
2: (laughs) This sweet, sour, like whatever, umami and granny's panties.
0: Oh, it's so gross. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Isaac grew up in Brooklyn in a conservative Syrian Jewish family and community. He was a hyper creative kid who constructed puppets for puppet shows and sewed clothes for Barbies. His mother loved fashion and his father worked in the garment industry and gave Isaac a sewing machine for his 10th birthday.
2: You know, I was bursting to make things and making things and performing and making puppets and eventually making clothes and doing shows. Right. It was my escape from rather, I don't know, like a really unhappy childhood. You know, like I was an alien among my community and to some degree, my family, you know, just a little bit to my family. I mean, they were they were lovely. Like, I love my family. Right. I also did female impersonations. I'm not sure if you got that far into the book, but I started doing those when I was like, you know, eight years old or 10 years old. I started doing Streisand and Liza and Judy. And and there was a mixed reaction to that. And there was a mixed reaction to the puppet shows. You know, they didn't exactly know what to make of me. You know, it was like, oh, what do we do with him? Right. Like I was so like effeminate and. Even then, like, I had these tendencies toward the flamboyant.
0: Isaac attended the Yeshiva of Flatbush, a religious school. But when he was in eighth grade, he had a very special teacher who recognized his talents, saw that he was struggling in this conservative religious environment. And she's the one that convinced his parents to let him audition for the High School of Performing Arts in Manhattan. This is the same school that the 1980 film Fame was set in.
2: And then I was accepted into the drama department. And it was really just like a kind of turnaround in my life. I learned a very, very important lesson early in my life, which was the lesson of optimism. You know, just when you think it's like the end of the world, like something comes up and suddenly you're freed from this terrible constraint. You know, sorry about the siren. Sorry about all the noise on this side, but you know... Yeah, how dare someone have a heart attack during our interview? Exactly!
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you grew up kosher as well, so when did you jump ship and jump into a big pile of shrimp?
2: You know, it it was at Performing Arts High School. That first year was just like layers and layers of culture shock and layers of guilt... Really, every time I came across bacon, I was shame. I'm guilted into, you know, right? But I did like it. I liked it a lot. Oh no, really? Oh dear, sorry.
0: That's okay. All
2: right, where were we? Bacon. Yeah, bacon. I mean, bacon is like the greatest thing in the world. And I did love it. And I did feel terrible, terrible guilt about it until I didn't. You know, like at some point you just make the turn into the oblivion and you go, yeah, I like bacon. I like shellfish. I like mixing milk and meat a lot, you know.
0: When he was still very young, part of his creativity included cooking breakfast that he would enjoy with his mom. They would sit across the table from each other and gab and gossip. I love this because it's obvious that you love words. Um, your book is beautifully written. You said you started you. cooking because you loved a particular word and you got into fashion because of a particular word. Can you talk about those yeah. two words?
2: Well, the word about cooking was saute, um, you know, and I heard the word and I looked it up and I couldn't find it. And then I figured out it was spelt a different way than how it sounded. Right. And so I found the word and the Encyclopedia Britannica and it had this kind of like step by step. Guide to sauteing. And I figured out how to, like, you know, saute different vegetables. Like, I would saute some mushrooms and, like, add them to scrambled eggs. And my mother would say, Oh, it's so gourmet. It's so gourmet. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you see, like, words are really important. And then I figured out also another word, taffeta, right? Like, my mother said it once, like, in conversation as though I would know what the hell it meant. And I didn't. And of course, like, I kind of figured it out. And then when I actually, encountered real taffeta, it kind of changed my life a little bit. But by the way, I always I, I insisted that there were two pronunciations of that word. I thought you could say taffeta, but I also thought it would be so fair to say taffeta ta-feta. because of the way it's spelled. Hello, taffeta. Mm-hmm, taffeta, darling.
0: Isaac has a lot of opinions on food and dining. Some hot takes, if you will. So now I present to you a little segment I'd like to call, I'll Tell You What, with Isaac Mizrahi. I'll
2: tell you what what I don't like as much as I thought I liked, which is fine dining. I don't like it that much. I don't like sitting there for hours, you know, like 11 Madison Park, uh, right? It's like 11 hours. Yeah. I'll tell you what I think has gotten so out of hand, darling, is pickling. Pickling and brining of things. Like everything is like so pickly and briny and vinegary, and I don't like it that much. Did you notice there's a huge pickle brine moment going on? It's almost upsetting. And everyone's saying, Acid, acid. You mean lemon juice? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Acid, <laughs> right? Acid is lemon juice or vinegar. Like, what other acids are there? Can you tell me? Sorry, just saying. Acid, really.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Isaac Mizrahi shares his last meal. And we know it's not going to be pickled, it's not going to be fancy, and it most certainly is not going to be a cruffin. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash your last meal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like. Listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite, just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with The Nosh. Available any Anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Well, let's ask the big question. What would you want for your last
2: meal? Well, you know, I did a lot of thinking about this and I would have to say that my last meal would be spaghetti, which would be like literally from the box with my tomato sauce, extremely beautiful. I make this tomato sauce in August from the tomatoes in Bridgehampton, right? And and the reason I love it so much is because, well, one thing, it's divine. I mean, the taste of this tomato sauce is so great. But also, you know, I get annoyed a little bit by these cookbooks, like, say, from any of these fantastic chefs in, like, you know northern california something where they go oh you have to have like this kind of artichoke and or else you can't make this i get a little annoyed by that you know because i think well i can't fly to sausalito to get that artichoke you know i can't get to poland to get that particular kind of quince you know i just can't right but I can say the same thing about my tomato sauce. It is There is something about, this is going to sound so pretentious, the terroir of those tomatoes in Long Island. And by the way, I don't use the Roma tomatoes. I use the beefsteak ones, right? And I use red and yellow. So it comes up this kind of wonderful, like almost pink color, like you think you're eating ale vodka, but you're not. And no onions in this recipe, just shallots and garlic and local basil, And I just love, I love making it. I love reducing it. I love canning. I can it. You know, I do like the whole boil things in water thing. And so, and so like by the time it's January and I'm eating this sauce and you open it and you just smell the freshness of the sauce. So that would be my last meal. It would be that spaghetti with that sauce.
0: That sounds delicious.
2: And then maybe, maybe I would include, you know, mint chocolate chip ice cream that I make from the mint in my. From I have a very, very special mint plant that grows on the edges of my property that was actually planted many, many years ago by my friend Glenn McMillan, who was spending the weekend, he planted it. And now it's like, I have literally like a pasture full of this mint. And it's very strong. And in the ice cream, like your your brain explodes and you want to scream when you taste it. It's delicious. It's really delicious.
0: So now that you make your own with the fresh mint, can you still eat the green colored mint chocolate chip you get in a carton?
2: Hell yes. Yeah. Hell yes. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. And by the way, wait, can I tell you something? Yeah. A good friend of mine, this really good cook, her name is Susan Sheehan. She told me once, she was right about this. We were making it together. We were making mint ice cream. And she was like, you know, just a little green food coloring in there, because the more green you like see with it, you're going to taste. And she was right. You need a little bit of green food coloring in the ice cream, which I do. Um, Wait, could I tell you something that I really want to find out, though? Of course. From you. Yes. And if you research this and you could come up with this, you will literally win like at least a bowl of ice cream. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. I knew that I could entice you that way, but I was going to say $100,000 and I was like, where am I getting this money from? But what I've been trying to figure out for so long, and I've asked so many chefs and they haven't exactly been able to, I am trying to figure out how they temper chocolate, Right. So as to use it in ice cream, right? Yeah. And it doesn't get like hard as a rock by the thir- you know by the th- third hour in the freezer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like they, when you buy ice cream from Häagen-Dazs, the chocolate chips are not like rocks, and you're not breaking your teeth on them. They're yes. beautiful. They're sort of like, see what I mean? If you could figure that out for me, darling, I would give you more than a bowl of ice cream. I would Ooh. give you like. I would give you. I would give you a bottle of my sauce.
0: That's what I want. But I'm going to come pick it up in person in uh, Bridgehampton, okay. Long Island. But not like a normal person. I'm going to wear like a trench coat. And I'm going to be like creeping around in the bushes and stuff.
2: Are <laughs> well, you going to steal it? You're going to steal yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to steal. try. Here's the thing. I only make like 30 bottles a year. Yeah. So that's like really little. And I give one to like my cousin and one to like my friend Myra and one to this friend, and one to that friend. I don't give more than five or six bottles away only because I mean, I like a lot of times of eating spaghetti between yeah. August. and Yeah,
0: no, I'm looking Just forward to this because on another episode, we researched why the marshmallows and rocky road ice cream don't get hard. <gasps> so you I'm, see, I'm already on this track. And I've also I'm curious why some chocolate chips, when you bake them in cookies, don't melt and hold their form. So I think that there's something to figure out here for sure.
2: You know that wonderful Lynn Rosetto Casper? Yes. She's wonderful. She has that incredible show called The Splendid Table on NPR. I adore it. And I was like, Lynn, you have to figure this out. And then she sent me this long, long, long thing, but it never answered the question. She started to answer the question, but she never fully because I was like, I think I've stumped her. Yeah. i asked a few different chefs about that, and I literally think I've stumped them. You well, know? I
0: think Lynn was trying to distract you with lots and lots of words and paragraphs. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not going to do I mean that. It. There's going to be no smoke and whistles. I'm going to do this, and I'm so excited that you came with a request because that makes uh-huh. it extra fun for me. Yay. I love it. Yeah. I said smoke and whistles, but I don't have time to discuss my linguistic missteps. I have a mystery to solve. Little does Isaac know that he doesn't need to bribe me with marinara sauce and ice cream, even though I would happily fly to Bridgehampton, Long Island to receive these prizes. The only payment I really want is for him to call me darling for the rest of my life. I got in touch with not one, but two ice creameries Ben and Jerry's and Molly Moon's homemade ice cream in Seattle.
3: Here is our cookie dough flavor that I'm scooping right now and it is a brown sugar cinnamon nutmeg ice cream with our homemade chocolate chip oatmeal cookie dough that is made and cut in house and it's super delicious. Heather Hodge is the head chef and
0: manager of culinary operations at Molly Moon's. She conceptualizes flavors. She does R and D for new flavors and she helps develop all of the components, the little add-ins that go into every scoop. I have a very specific question for you that comes from Isaac Mizrahi because he makes his own ice cream and he makes mint chip ice cream with the mint from his garden. And he wants to know why the chocolate chunks in ice cream don't freeze and like break your tooth and get super, super hard in the freezing process.
3: The reason why it doesn't become hard as a rock is because of the fat in chocolate. Chocolate has a really high fat content and fats are not going to freeze into a super hard, solid mass the way that a liquid would, like water. And adding even more fat to a chocolate creates an even lighter bite. Yeah, so we actually use a eutectic, which is a combination of two fats that result in a lower than expected melting point. So in our case, we take Theo's 70% dark chocolate and some organic coconut oil, and we combine those two to make a inclusion that... We drizzle into our ice cream that is able to be really, really firm when frozen and crunchy and crispy when frozen. But when it actually gets into your mouth, which is about like 94, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, it melts really, really quickly. So you get the texture of the crunch, but a really, really nice melting point so you can get the full flavor of the chocolate.
0: They use this same melted down mixture of chocolate and coconut oil as a chocolate shell topping, just like magic shell. And this mixture of chocolate and oil is basically what ice cream companies use to create the chocolate shell on an ice cream bar. Over at Ben & Jerry's, they use chocolate that's been combined with vegetable oil to create what they call a compound chocolate.
1: We buy our chunks pre-made from Barry Calibo. They're one of the world's largest chocolate manufacturers. And they've been doing this forever. So they know the requirements of ice cream people and what it needs to be. Our formula is proprietary to Ben & Jerry's, but it's how everybody does it.
0: That's Ben and Jerry's flavor guru. That's what they call him. Eric Fredette, who's responsible for creating flavors like Tonight Dough, Brownie Batter Core, and Chocolate Therapy. It's kind of like talking to a celebrity. It's funny. It's ice cream flavors, but I feel like I'm talking to like a movie director or somebody who created, you know, Oscar the Grouch. It's like, you're the guy who created these amazing flavors that we all love. And Eric says they get four different shapes of compound chocolate to use in all of their ice creams.
1: We get chunks, we get flakes, we get flakettes, and we get chips. Chunk is big and clunky and crunchy and hard. So some flavors get that, like New York Superfudge Chunk. Cherry Garcia has a flake, so it's slightly thinner. It snaps easier. Chips go into mini cups or any item you want to disperse the chocolate more evenly. You don't want to find a chunk. You want a little bit of chocolate pretty much in every bite.
0: Eric says it's important to have chocolate that melts quickly on your tongue at about the same rate that the ice cream is melting. So let's say you're eating Ben & Jerry's New York Super Fudge Chunk. It's chocolate ice cream with white and dark fudge chunks, pecans, walnuts, and fudge-covered almonds. And when you take a bite, You don't want the ice cream to melt away and leave you with this mouthful of hard, waxy chocolate chunks. You want the chocolate to melt at the same rate as the ice cream so you can enjoy all of those components at the same time. And chocolate plays an important role in ice cream, not just because it's delicious, but it's also used as a protective coating.
1: If you want something to stay crunchy or if you want to protect it from melting, like a a candy cane piece would melt into a, a little puddle of goo after a couple of weeks in ice cream. And that's called moisture migration. So moisture water from the ice cream itself will go into whatever you put in there. So I can put a a dark chocolate sandwich cookie, like an Oreo, into ice cream, and it's crunchy. But in a couple weeks, it'll be soft because moisture will migrate into that dry cookie, and it'll soften it up. But if I wanted that cookie to stay crunchy, and you use chocolate for that.
0: Heather from Molly Moon says a lot of thought and engineering and science goes into making a pint of ice cream with lots of chunky add-ins and swirls.
3: I actually would love for the world to know how hard it is to put a caramel into our homemade ice cream. Not only does it have a higher density, so it immediately wants to sink through the entire tub of ice cream and go to the bottom of the tub, but getting that perfect temperature to pour it in, that perfect texture as you pour it in, It's really, really tricky. And then getting that really, really nice swirl as well, where you get a little gob of the caramel with every single bite versus something that just melts directly into the ice cream and becomes more of a caramel ice cream is really tricky.
0: When Isaac was asking me about the science behind chocolate chunks and ice cream, you might remember that I mentioned that I've always wondered how chocolate chips hold their shape when baked into a cookie. So while I was in this mystery solving mood, wearing my trench coat, my fedora, and the do 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 in the back of my head, I also connected with Nestle's test kitchen manager, Meredith Thomason. Nestle invented the chocolate chip, or as they call it, the morsel, back in the 1940s. When you bake cookies and you use the chocolate chip, and everybody knows what that little shape is, when the cookies come out of the oven, I'm always surprised that they retain their shape. Of course, when you bite into it, you know, it's melty. But how does the chocolate chip not just melt into a puddle when you bake it?
4: It's a great question. Um, And honestly, the story of how we came to the chocolate chip really does start with the woman I call the patron saint of chocolate chip cookies, Ruth Wakefield. Um, She and her husband owned the Toll House Inn in Massachusetts. And she would bake and cook a lot for the patrons of the inn. And in the 1930s, she happened to be making a recipe of her butter cookies that had chocolate and nuts in them. And she ran out of her normal baker's chocolate. And she had a bar of Nestle semi sweet baking chocolate and she chopped that up and put it in her cookies and when they came out, she realized that the chocolate didn't melt. And this was like the most amazing thing, obviously. Long story short, word spread of the cookies and they became an instant hit. And she essentially made a deal with Nestle that the rights to the recipe and the name Toll House, uh, she would sell to Nestle for a dollar and a lifetime supply of chocolate. So I think we're pretty much a grateful nation for <laughs> her making this amazing transaction. Oh. Oh, no, Um, though. She got totally ripped off, this poor lady. She did. She did. But we all benefited. You know, sometimes we have to make sacrifices in life. So anyways, with that, um, so Nestle, you know, took over this idea of the chocolate chip cookie. And I think what happened was there was a need for smaller pieces of chocolate. People were kind of getting sick and tired of chopping up chocolate bars. So Nestle invented the the chocolate chipper, like what we like to say is the morsel. And that was a few years after she invented the recipe to begin with. And so our shape um, with the curl on top is unique to Nestle. So that being said, chocolate chips in general are made a little bit different than a bar of chocolate. Chocolate chips usually have less cocoa butter in them than a chocolate bar. So cocoa butter is what makes chocolate more liquidy and less viscous so chocolate chips have a higher viscosity than a bar of chocolate because they have less cocoa butter in them usually they also have some lecithin um, and more sugar and cocoa solids in them and that also helps them retain their shape but you know the the cool thing about Nestle chocolate chips or morsels is that they also, when you bite into them when they first come out of the oven, there's this little pull or like little curly cue that happens. That's like the little melty part in the center. That's my favorite part. Um, and so you know we formulated our morsels to to have that that nice little pull and the soft center when they come out. But it's not a puddle, like you said. It still retains its shape. Well,
0: there you have it, Isaac. I solved your mystery. Hi, everyone. It's future Rachel Bell here to interrupt past Rachel Bell to tell you some exciting news. So this episode originally aired on April 15th, 2019. And on May 8th, which sidebar is the anniversary of my bat mitzvah, a package was delivered to me at the radio station. So I rip open the box and on top is a card. And I open the card and it is stationery that is embossed with the word Mizrahi. So now I start getting excited and my heart is racing. And I read the card and in Isaac's handwriting, it says, Dear Darling... You did it. Bon appetit. Now, you heard us talking earlier in the episode. He said he would send me a bottle of sauce if I solved his mystery. But not for one single second did I think he was being serious. I never expected to get sauce in the mail. I just thought that we were bantering and it was all in the name of the episode. But in this box... Wrapped in 13,000 layers of bubble wrap, which was then wrapped with about four rolls of scotch tape, was a bottle of his coveted homemade tomato sauce. And he had a homemade label on the jar that said S's, E-S-S-E-S, which is his mother's maiden name. And he very kindly included instructions on how to reheat the sauce. He told me to put lots and lots of grated Parmesan cheese on top. And at this point, I am just losing my mind. My whole body is just buzzing with excitement. And honestly, it wasn't just about the sauce. And it wasn't that a famous person sent me the sauce. It was about the fact that I felt like we connected so much during our interview. And this made me feel like he felt the connection too. So it was a really, really, really sweet gesture. And to honor that gesture... I did not open that bottle of sauce until August 20th, 2019. But I finally opened it. I was kind of saving it for a special occasion, which I don't know what that ended up being. But you can watch a video of me wearing a very strange combination of loungewear, cooking spaghetti, warming up Isaac's sauce. It's all on my Instagram stories. It's saved to the top of my page. It's called Isaac Spaghetti. So make sure and follow along on Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast. And now you know Isaac Mizrahi has a heart of gold and he does what he says he's going to do even if you think it was just a joke when we come back Isaac shares the backstage tip that Liza Minnelli gave him to rid himself of stage fright and the trick involves ice cream Isaac Mizrahi wants spaghetti with homegrown and home canned tomato sauce for his last meal. And he wants homemade mint chip ice cream with mint from his Long Island garden. And thanks to a tip from Liza Minnelli, who, by the way, also went to that same performing arts high school in Manhattan, that ice cream actually helps him when he gets stage fright.
2: When we first met, like I was 26 years old, right? We were backstage at this event where she was giving me an award. And she noticed that I was really nervous because I had to speak. And she was like, oh, you know, what's your favorite food? And I was like, oh, my favorite food is ice cream, hands down. And she goes, oh, what's your favorite flavor? I said, oh, easy, easy, it's mint chocolate chip. She said, okay, picture yourself in two hours from now, after this is all done, whether it's a huge success or a big failure, but you're in your bed eating a big bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Like, does that, and then suddenly poof, like the stage fright was gone, you know, because she's right. It's not about success or failure or being nervous. It's about eating ice cream. <laughs> it's always about eating ice cream.
0: Well, why do you think that <laughs> does work though? What, what does it do to you psychologically that calms you?
2: Well, it makes me think that, you know, that what is about to happen is of no import. And that the most important thing mm. is the sitting in bed eating ice cream, because that's really what I love to do. Yeah, seriously. And by the way, I speak about that in the preface to my book that, you know, I'm not really a reveler. I'm not someone who looks at my life and measures it by achievements. I measure it a lot by, you know, sitting in my living room with my dogs, watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or something, eating what I now eat in replacement of ice cream, which is skinny cow bars. Yeah. Like, because here's the thing, they're like four to six points each. But of course, if you eat like three of them, like me, because I'm a mental case, you know, it becomes fattening. But I am on Weight Watchers and I swear it's helping.
0: And that was Isaac Mizrahi's last meal. Thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. I admire your confidence and just your whole humor and personality. I just think you're the best.
2: Well, you're pretty darn special yourself. Thank you. It was a really fun day.
0: You'll think differently when I'm in your yard with the trench coat. (laughs) Exactly. Stealing
2: (laughs) the sauce. Thank you. All right, darling. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. I never had to bust out that trench coat because a few months after this episode aired, Isaac invited me to his Manhattan apartment to cook a couple dishes together for his YouTube channel, HelloIsaac.com.
2: Where did you learn to cook, Rachel Bell?
0: You know, I grew up in a family that was very into food.
2: Okay, i already. I think I overstuffed my tortilla. That's Okay. That's one of my problems: overstuffing my tortilla.
0: I got a lot of response of People saying, "You guys just connected. You had this magical I don't know what's connection." Going on. I feel like we
2: have. We should maybe have a child together. East Coast, oh, West Coast Jews. Yeah. It's gonna
0: be like the Biggie Smalls and Tupac, but of
2: Jews. <laughs> nice.
0: You know, there's that saying: People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. And Isaac is an expert. He's a professor at knowing how to make people feel special. You can watch the cooking videos that we made at HelloRachelBell.com. Just click on the video tab. Or you can find a link in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget to pick up Isaac's book, I Am a Memoir. Thanks to Heather Hodge, head chef at Molly Moon's Homemade Ice Cream in Seattle, and Ben & Jerry's flavor guru, Eric Fredette. Thanks to Meredith Thomason, test kitchen manager at Nestle. As always, you will find the original Toll House cookie recipe on the back of their bags of morsels. This episode was originally produced by Erin Mason and me, but it was cleaned up and reproduced by Laura Scott and me. Our theme music is by Prom Queen. You can listen to her music by her music at promqueenband.bandcamp. Follow along on Instagram at Your Last Meal Podcast. That's where you can see exclusive footage of me in a very strange outfit cooking Isaac Spaghetti. That's where you can send me a message and stay up to date on all things Your Last Meal. And I'm not sure how closely you listen to the credits, but if you do, you know that this show is made and marketed by only two people, Laura Scott and me. So we can use all the help we can get. If you like the show, please leave a review on your podcast player or just easily tap out five stars. If you use Apple podcasts, that helps get the show out to more people. It's super quick and easy to do. Thank you so much. Woof. That's for you, Renee. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal.
2: You know, I only wear black because I'm so terribly vain and all I ever think about or have ever thought about is looking thinner than I do. Yeah. You know, and though black cannot work miracles, it does help.